February 23rd, 2001, the Los Angeles Times ran an article on the flood. They didn't call it the flood. The headline was actually Earth's Greatest Mass Extinction. Let me read a bit from it. On Friday, a team of scientists reported an Armageddon that wiped out nearly all life on the planet 250 million years ago may have been triggered by a massive meteor collision like the one that millions of years later helped end the reign of the dinosaurs. So they were saying there were two extinction events, one 250 million years ago and then 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs were wiped out. Article goes on to say, the attention-grabbing findings are reviving a long-standing debate over whether slower processes such as volcanoes run amok, climate changes, or toxic shifts in seawater chemistry should shoulder the blame for the die-offs that have plagued the planet, or whether a single dramatic event like an asteroid impact is largely at fault. Well, we'd certainly agree with a single dramatic event. Scientists call this particular extinction the, extinction the great dying, and they say it was the largest of all extinctions. Virtually all marine life and land life forms were eliminated in a very short period of time. And they define a short period of time as 8,000 years. We believe it was a very short period of time. Now, you should always read, sometimes you get reading these things, you think, oh, this is bunk, I'm not reading anymore. You should always read to the end of the article. The article makes clear that these scientists believe that great dying occurred to a meteor collision, but it goes on to state this. No telltale traces of a meteor have ever been found for the extinction event, and the science team that produced the paper has no direct evidence of any impact. The fossil record makes it clear there was a mass extinction, but most scientists just can't bring themselves to accept the biblical record. And once you have denied creation by the creator, you certainly can't accept any other biblical truth as being plausible. And so they have to come up with all these, these theories, and basically these scientists said, well, let's, let's conclude with zero evidence that a meteor impact caused a great dying not possibly the result of a flood. You know, the truth about creation is found in Genesis 1 and 2. And the truth of creation is that God created the world and everything in it. And, and the truth about the great dying is found in Genesis 6 through 9. God, who created the world, destroyed the world he had made. It was not a collision with a meteor or any other kind of event like uh, volcanoes run amok or toxic seawater. It was all done by the hand of God. Well, this morning we're going to pick up our account uh, of the flood in Genesis chapter 8. And while you're turning there, let me give you a really good talking point. Should you find yourself in a conversation with someone who doubts intelligent design, this, this week in my study, in my research, I um, was researching a scientist named Fred Hoyle. He was an English a physicist and astronomer. Fred Hoyle is actually the one who coined the term Big Bang Theory. And the reason he called it the Big Bang Theory is he didn't, he, didn't reject, or he didn't believe the rapid expansion theory that so many scientists purported of how our universe came into existence. He didn't believe that was plausible. And so he denied the Big Bang Theory. And I don't know if, if Fred Hoyle was a, a believer in the true and living God or not, but he refuted a lot of evolutionary concepts. And Fred Hoyle is probably best known for his analogy that he called tornado in a junkyard. He said the reality of the, 
the universe evolving to the state it is in today, the possibility of that is about the same as a tornado blowing through a junkyard and leaving behind a fully constructed, fully functional Boeing 747. That is ridiculous, isn't it? It's impossible. That, that could never happen. Yes, and the odds against evolutionary design and order are, are just as impossible, just as astronomical and implausible. Well, we've been through, um, in the last nine weeks, we have been through creation. We've been through 1,656 years of history since that first week, and now a flood um, that is both worldwide and devastating. God has placed eight righteous people, the family of Noah, in this ark, along with uh, one pair of every kind of animal, seven pairs of those uh, clean animals. And in the ark, they're protected from the waters of judgment. You remember they, they went into that ark and God closed the door, God sealed it up, and they're protected. And that is a picture of those who are in Christ. When we're in Christ, we are protected from the judgment that is to come. Jesus in John 10 said that we're his sheep, and he said, my sheep know me, and my sheep follow me. And he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. So just as those in the ark were protected from judgment, so are we who are in Christ protected from the judgment that is to come. Well, let's read in Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, and we'll go down through verse 12. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. By the way, do you know why Scripture is so particular? The seventh month, the 10th month, exactly what day? It's because this is history. This is not just a story. It's history, and these days and dates are incredibly accurate. Verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the wind of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So we see first off in chapter 8, in the very first verse, it says that God remembered Noah. You know, we define the word remembering as calling something to mind that we've forgotten. Let me assure you, God had not forgotten Noah. It wasn't like God called, caused this worldwide cataclysmic flood and then forgot about it. It wasn't like he was at the windows of heaven one day looking out at all the water covering the earth and off on the horizon in the distance he saw a speck and said, oh yeah, the ark. Oh, oh, I, I forgot about Noah and his family. Let me do something for them wasn't like that at all. The, the word remembered can also mean to retain in your memory. It's not forgetting, it's to keep in your mind. 
Noah was always on God's heart and mind continually, just as you and I are, and especially in a storm. God had not forgotten Noah and, and his family and those who were on the ark. Actually, in Scripture, when you see the phrase, God remembered, it means God is about to intervene or God is about to deliver. In Genesis 30, we see God remembered Rachel, uh, Jacob's wife, whom he loved dearly, that was barren. God remembered her, and God opened her womb and gave her a child. God remembered Abraham, Abraham who was a righteous man who walked with God, and because God remembered, because Abraham was always on his mind, God spared Abraham's nephew Lot from destruction. God remembered his people when they were in captivity, and he provided a deliverer to lead them out of Egypt. God remembered Rachel and Abraham and the Israelites. They were on his mind continually, and when the time was right, he intervened on their behalf. So God remembered Noah. It was time to intervene. Verses 2 and 3 tell us the waters from above and below stopped. They receded continually, and by the 150th day, the waters had abated. Now, where did all that water go? Verse 1 tells us that God caused a wind to blow, but that wind would not have been enough to, to evaporate the volume of water that we're talking about. Even, even with the sun coming out and heating things up and, and evaporation occurring, it would have taken a lot longer than the timetable that Scripture gives us for all that water to disappear. Well, creation scientists believe that there's ample evidence to conclude that the earth was much, much more flat, not completely flat, but much flatter before the flood. You know, if you today were to completely flatten out the surface of the earth, bring the mountains down, bring the basins, ocean basins and valleys up, if you completely flatten out the surface of the earth, there's enough water to cover the entire earth two miles deep. You remember from your classes in high school and college, the earth is made up of two-thirds water. So it's not surprising there's that much water on the earth. Well, when the waters of the, of the deep burst forth, it says in Genesis chapter 6 that not only the, the water came down, but the water came up out of the core of the earth. When the waters from the deep burst forth, it was explosive. I remember in middle school geometry class a demonstration showing how you could bring all the continents together and form one solid landmass. They all fit together. You may remember that from when you were in school. Well, it's very likely and very possible when this explosive water burst forth out of the earth that the continents were formed or, or pushed apart by the flood. And that deluge of, of water also pushed up mountains of sediment. There were massive uh, mudslides and a lot of dirt and rock were moved that caused rapid fossilization. You know, the scientists who try to tell us that the earth is hundreds of millions of years old look at layers upon layers of fossilization and sediment, and, and they say, well, that's how we know these different strata. It took so many years to form the different strata. That's how we know the, millions of year, the earth is millions of years old, when the reality is it happened very fast. There was a tremendous force of water that pushed up layers on top of layers. In fact, that water moving and burying so much so fast, especially uh, marine life, explains why you can find marine fossils on top of mountains. I have been on mountains in Peru between 13 and 14,000 feet and found fossilized shells. You can go to the Himalayas at 18,000 feet and find fossilized marine life on top of that mountain. It's because of this massive movement of water that deposited all these sediments on the mountains. 
Well, back to the water that covered the earth. The power of the floodwaters not only pushed up mountains that were already existing even higher, but created more mountains, and it also pushed down valleys and ocean basins even deeper. And that's not just scientific theory. I want you to hold your place here in Genesis 8 and turn to the 104th Psalm with me this morning. 104th Psalm. It's not just scientific theory that the flood reshaped the earth. The psalmist in the 104th Psalm is testifying of the greatness and the majesty and the power of God. Psalm 104, beginning in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed in splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Now look closely at verses 5 through 9. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so they may not cover again the earth. So this short account describing the flood reveals that mountains were raised and valleys sank. So what happened? Genesis 8 tells us the wind blew after the flood and the waters had a place to which they could retreat. And so God removed the water from the face of the earth. And because of that, we can say assuredly that the earth was a very different place. It appeared very different after the flood. There were massive high mountains like Mount Everest at 29,000 plus feet, and there were deep Uh, basins in the oceans like the Mariana Trench, which is over 36,000 feet deep, more than six miles high, more than seven miles deep. The earth had been completely transformed by the flood. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 tells us the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, you have probably heard stories or heard of expeditions, many that have gone out in the mountains around Turkey and, and Armenia in, in pursuit of the ark. And there have been claims that the ark or, or pieces of the ark have been found. None of those claims have been substantiated. None of that's been proven. And I'll tell you, there are a couple of issues, I think, uh, from Scripture. There are a couple of issues with finding the ark. The first thing is, verse 4 says, the ark landed or came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. It doesn't say it was on Mount Ararat, which is a lot of, a lot of the expedition, expeditions have gone to that place, but in the mountains. It's a large mountain range where the ark came to rest. And then if you look in verse 13, you see that Noah removed the covering of the ark. Remember, when he constructed the ark, God had him build it solid all the way up to within a cubit, 18 to 20 inches from the top, and then put a covering over that. What was that for? Well, to allow airflow, to allow light, into the ark, but that covering, it says in in verse 13 of chapter 8, that covering Noah removed. So when the roof came off or when the covering came off, what you have is the ark is completely exposed to the elements. The ark was not fossilized, so it's unlikely that that ark would last for 4,000 years in the elements. 
Now, to say the least, it would be an incredible find. Finding the ark would be one of the greatest uh, geological discoveries or archaeological discoveries of all time, but we don't need the ark to prove the flood. The fossil record provided overwhelming evidence confirming the flood. More than the fossil record even, we have the infallible word of God. The, ark ha- or the, the flood happened exactly as God says it happened. But the majority of people today reject the biblical account of the flood, just like they have rejected the biblical account and the truth of creation. And it's not an intellectual issue that causes people to denounce the flood. I read you the article of the scientist who came up with this great theory, except for the fact there was no meteor and no evidence of collision to prove the theory of the great dying. And yet we have a very accurate account of the flood, but it gets rejected, not because it's not intellectually sound. The reason people reject creation, the reason people reject the flood is a spiritual issue. It's because of their sinful hearts they've rejected the word of God. It's because of the hardness of their hearts that they've rejected God himself. Last week we mentioned another judgment that is coming. But unbelievers scoff at the judgment that's to come. They think they can live however they want with no accountability. They think they can be their own God. But Peter in 2 Peter 3 talks about the scoffers and the judgment that's coming. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by the means of these, the worlds that existed then was, that existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. He's saying these scoffers are foolish when they say the world has gone on just as it ever was. They're foolish. They don't remember that God who formed the world is the same God who destroyed the world by water and the present heavens and earth, the heavens and earth that have existed since the flood are reserved for the fire of judgment. Those who doubt the word of God would not believe about the flood. They would not believe even if we showed them evidence of the ark. You know why? Because any evidence you give, they take and reinterpret with their evolutionary secular world view. They don't accept God's word as truth. Look down in verses 6 and 7. You can go back later and do the math, but let me just tell you, by the time Noah sends out the raven in verses 6 and 7, they've been on the ark 224 days. Now, why did Noah send out a raven first? Ravens are scavengers. They will eat almost anything. So if there was any dead flesh out there on the water, if the raven found something to eat, it would not come immediately back to the ark. And Scripture tells us the raven flew here and there, to and fro. Came back to the ark some, but flew out and was out probably all day long just feasting, having a great time. Now we know somewhere in the midst of flying here and there, the raven must have come back to the ark for Mrs. Raven. 
or we wouldn't have ravens today, right? And this raven's not dumb, as we shouldn't be either men. There's a good lesson in this. If you go out somewhere nice for lunch, don't come back home talking about it. A better plan is to take your wife there for dinner. So he's out feasting, and he comes back for Mrs. Raven. Then look in verses 8 through 12, it tells us Noah sent out a dove three times. Why did he send a dove after a raven? Well, the raven would tell him kind of what was out there. The dove, a dove is a, a nester. A dove is not going to stay away from the ark until it can build a nest. So the first time the dove comes back because there's nowhere to even land. Seven days later in the second flight, the dove comes back with a freshly picked olive leaf. That told Noah that the water had receded at least to the point that the tops of the olive trees were, were visible. Now, a dove won't build in the top of a tree. So it came back again. And then finally, you know, on the third flight, there was no return. The dove had found a place to build a nest and to stay. So verse 13 tells us what we just talked about. Noah removes that canopy or that roof, and it says he can see dry land all around. Now, by this point, by verse 13, when he can see dry land, they have been in the ark 314 days. Can you imagine? Closed in, cooped up, dim light, stuffy, smelly, all those animals. 314 days they've been in the ark. Now, now I'm going to tell you, you know, the, the couple of, of uh, minor snow ice events we had recently, I don't stay home. I, I can't after a day, no, I'm going to say after half a day, I'm getting out. My wife thinks I'm crazy. You want to go? No, I don't want to go. I got to get out. You remember the, the big event last February that lasted for days? Ask my neighbor, Donovan Sims, how many times he had to get the tractor and pull me out of the ditch. I, di I didn't even make it out our long drive. But I'm going. You know, when I grew up in South Florida, we had lots of, uh, lots of hurricanes. And my typical MO was after the front of the hurricane passed, when the eye was over us, I'd get out and drive around. I'm going to tell you, if you tell me I have to stay put, you better chain me up. And then basically, I'm going to be like the Gadarene demoniac, and I'm going to break the chains and get free. 314 days in the ark, he can see that the ground is dry, but Noah stays put. Why? Why? It's because this little phrase you see in chapter 6 and verse 22 and in chapter 7 and verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. You see, God had not yet instructed Noah to, to leave the ark. In fact, if you look back, it appears... God didn't say anything to Noah for nearly a year. So from the time God told Noah 314 days, almost a year earlier, to go into the ark, he had simply been faithfully obeying and patiently waiting until God gave new instruction. Now, I don't know why God had Noah continue to stay in the ark for another 56 days. Maybe the ground just look dry. We, we live on about four acres of pasture, and there are a lot of times the ground looks dry, and I start walking out there, and I just sink because it's so wet. 
Maybe God was allowing time. All those animals on the ark, remember that man and animals were still vegetarians at this time. God had not given permission for meat to be eaten, so maybe it would allow some time for some of the vegetation to grow to take care of all those animals that were on the ark. I, I don't know. But let's jump back in at verse 15. It says, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So, after a year and 10 or 11 days, Noah comes out of the ark. There's no explanation by God. One year earlier, God says, go in. Now a year later, God says, go out, and Noah obeys. And the scripture tells us that from the three sons of Noah and all the birds and all the animals on the ark, the earth is repopulated. But remember, it's a, it's a completely different world. We read in 2 Peter 3, after Peter described uh, the flood, he writes that the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. So it wasn't the earth that existed before the flood. So once you just imagine for a moment what it was like for Noah and his family as they walked out of the ark, the, the landscape looked completely different than what they had seen when they went into the ark. Mounts had been pushed up, valleys had been lowered, ocean basins had been deepened to hold all that water, and it was probably a very barren landscape. There was some vegetation uh, to feed those animals that had been on the ark, but it was mostly desolate. It wasn't a pretty picture like we see in, in children's Bible story books of a lush, flowery scene with sunshine and, and brilliant blue skies. It wasn't beautiful trees and flowing streams, it was a completely destroyed planet. And without being too graphic, when they got off the ark, they likely saw and smelled massive death. And so they stepped off and they saw a very startling and very stark reminder of the judgment of sin. And so look at Noah's first act on exiting the ark. In verse 20, it says, he built an altar and he sacrificed one of every clean animal and bird. And you'll notice the offering was a burnt offering. Now, it, it had an element of thanks. They were grateful for God's goodness to them, his graciousness, his protection, his provision, but it was much more than that. There are different types of offering you see in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And, and in some, only a portion of the animal is burnt. And there's a portion or portions left that can be eaten by the priest or by the 
person making the sacrifice, but a burnt offering was completely different. A burnt offering that the animal offered was completely consumed by fire. It's a symbol of total devotion, complete dedication to the Lord. You didn't keep anything for yourself. You, you gave everything to the Lord. And I want you to notice that Noah's worship, his sacrifice was lavish. He didn't sacrifice just one of the clean animals or one bird and one clean animal. He didn't say to himself, well, we may need more later. We've got to be sure they can repopulate. We have to be sure we have more for sacrifice. It says that he sacrificed one of every clean animal and every bird. It was a lavish offering, a lavish sacrifice. The burnt offering was also a recognition of sin, of the need for repentance. You have to imagine when Noah and his family stepped off the ark after being on there 370 or 71 days, there must have been great relief at getting off of that ark, but at the same time, they came face to face with the devastation that sin causes, and they knew that they too were sinners and they deserved judgment. So this act of worship by Noah was a good reminder to them of their need for forgiveness and their need for repentance. It was a good reminder of the graciousness of God. It was a good reminder that they were to give their lives completely over to God and completely devoted to him. And if you look, verse 21 and 22 tells us the sacrifice pleased God. Look what God said. Man still has an evil heart. And God says, I've just destroyed everyone on earth because of the evil intentions of his heart. But God says, even though man still has an evil heart, he says he will not destroy man and the living creatures again. In fact, he gives them the assurance, while the earth remains, you're going to see the seasons. They're going to be day and night. There's going to be cold and dark. Everything is going to go on as, as normal while the earth remains. There's another judgment that's going to come. But while the earth remains, God will let us enjoy the seasons and day and night. Well, it says that God was pleased with the sacrifice. I want to tell you the reason God was pleased with the sacrifice is not because of the particular animals that, that Noah chose. It was not because of the smell of those animals being burnt. God actually doesn't have physical smell says he was pleased with the sacrifice, and the reason he was pleased with the sacrifice was because of the heart of the one making the sacrifice. Noah was a righteous man. He was still a sinner. Noah still sinned. We're going to see that in the very next chapter. Noah still was a sinner. With all of his heart, he obeyed God. He did everything that the Lord commanded him to do. And so here they come now. Noah's kind of the, the new Adam. Through his line, the earth will be repopulated. In fact, every one of us here in this place, everyone in all the world is a descendant of either Shem or Ham or Japheth, his three sons. They come into a world that's completely different. And as they come into that world that's completely different, they begin with turning their focus on the Lord and making this incredible sacrifice and reminding themselves of the need for forgiveness and repentance, reminding themselves how, how gracious God has been to them. 
reminding themselves of the need for total devotion and total commitment to the Lord. Would you bow with me in this room, in the venue as well? Would you just bow for just a moment? And let's ask the important question that we ask each week after we spent time in the Word of God. What is it that God is trying to say to us from this passage? And I'll make several suggestions to you, but I suggest you ask the Holy Spirit of God who indwells you as a believer to speak to you about what he's communicating from his word. I would say, first of all, this morning, if you're here and you're in a storm, God would say to you, I I remember. I haven't forgotten you. You're already on my mind, and when the time is right, you can trust that I am going to intervene. Maybe, like Noah, you haven't heard from God in quite a while. You just need to continue your obedience, to wait. For a year, Noah didn't hear from God. In the midst of that storm, he didn't hear a word. just kept on being obedient. Don't take matters into your own hands. Just wait. Now, you probably should, if you haven't heard from the Lord, you should check your obedience. Have you been faithful to do what he's already told you to do? Have you obeyed commands in the past? If you have, then you just wait patiently and you wait trusting. I think for all of us here this morning, this passage certainly says that we should consider our worship. When we come to worship, we should be reminded of our need for forgiveness and repentance. Our worship should express our gratitude to the Lord. We, we deserve judgment. We deserve destruction. But he sent Jesus to spare us. We should remember that when we worship. And finally, our worship should be an act, total devotion. You know, when we come here week by week to worship together as the body of Christ, we should, when we come to worship continually, be reminded of the importance of completely giving ourselves daily in obedience, total commitment to Christ. What's the Spirit said to you this morning? How do you need to respond? 